millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, you are very welcome to The Tonight Show. Countdown to a four-day ceasefire in Gaza and Israeli hostage releases, which are now expected on Friday. The fighting in the region between Israel and Hamas is still due to stop tomorrow morning. However, it's not known at this point if nine-year-old Irish-Israeli girl Emily Hand will be among those released back to their loved ones. We're going to carry on with the campaign until we have absolute definite news, information, official news and information that she is being released. And a political row erupts here over plans to charge workers more PRSI to pay for the state's pension pot. We debate with Fianna Fáil's Lisa Chambers and Sinn Féin's Pierce Doherty. Well, it's expected that the first hostages taken during the Hamas attack on Israel on October 7th will not now be released until Friday. It follows a temporary truce agreement reached by both sides in the conflict, which will see a four-day ceasefire starting at 8am Irish time tomorrow. It is not known yet if Irish-Israeli nine-year-old Emily Hand will be among those released back to their loved ones as part of this complex deal. Here's her father. Thomas Hand. We're going to carry on with the campaign until we have absolute definite news, information, official news and information that she is being released and then we'll I'll fly off on the next flight. Well, a short time ago, I spoke to peace activist and Israel-Hamas hostage negotiator Gershon Baskin, who's, is in, who's in Israel, about how this fragile and complex temporary truce will work. The most delicate point that could be, we're on the cusp of beginning a ceasefire and hopefully the first exchange of Israeli hostages for Palestinian prisoners it's all so delicate and everything can go wrong. It's usually gets started late. Um, there are a lot of details that have to be covered to make sure that everyone does what they're supposed to do at the right time. Um, it's complicated. But if it goes well tomorrow, probably around midday, it means that it will probably go well over the next three days and maybe open the door for more days beyond that. So explain what hopefully will happen tomorrow? What are the mechanics of the releases? We expect that at 10 o'clock a ceasefire will begin. It probably, as we've known from past experiences, in the hours before a ceasefire, we may see an increase in the fighting and Israeli bombing of Gaza and Hamas rocket shelling of Israel, or even fighting on the ground between forces. But at 10 o'clock, it's supposed to stop. 
Israel will then give a six-hour window when it is obligated itself not to fly any drones over the Gaza Strip so that Hamas can collect the hostages that it intends to release tomorrow. I think the list of the 12 or 13 names of those hostages is being given over tonight. The Israeli government should receive it. They're not notifying the families until they're sure that the identities of the hostages are correct. Um, sometime during that six-hour period, Hamas will gather the hostages. They will probably, I expect, run three or four or five convoys of identical vehicles emerging from different spots in the south half of the west of the Gaza Strip that will convene somewhere near the Rafah border crossing between Gaza and Sinai. Uh, at that time, the Red Cross, the International Red Cross, will be there to receive the hostages, to check their identity, to see if they need medical care. If they do, they'll be immediately calling people on the other side. They will then cross the border to the Egyptian side. Once that happens, the green light will be given on the Israeli side to release uh, three times the numbers of prisoners, of women and uh, prisoners under the age of 18. That list has already been published. The whole list of prisoners who could be released, uh, we don't know the, exactly which ones would be released tomorrow. But then the Red Cross will receive those uh, prisoners, Palestinian prisoners, check their identity, and they will be brought to a checkpoint to the West Bank, where they will be released after the Israeli hostage crossed the line into Israel. They'll be taken to hospital, either by helicopter or by ambulance. Uh, their families at that point will be notified to come to the hospitals to meet them. Uh, Gershon, do Hamas know where all of the hostages are at this point, given the fact that there are other armed factions and perhaps individuals within Gaza who may be holding some people captive? Right, knowing Hamas as I do, I think it's inconceivable that Hamas on the ground in Gaza doesn't have control of all the hostages, even if they're not physically holding all of them. Hamas is a very centralized organization. They're control freaks. They're armed and they are in charge of what's going on there. So maybe in the first week or two or maybe in three weeks, they didn't have full control. But after six weeks, I, I assume that they do. When the statement came out in Qatar from some of the Hamas leaders that they don't know where all the hostages is, are, I believe that that's true. The, the Hamas leaders sitting in Qatar are detached from the reality of what's happening in Gaza. They're not suffering the bombing. They're not suffering the reality of what's happening in Gaza. And they bear no responsibility for the decisions that are being made by the people fighting this war in Gaza. They have the luxury of sitting in five-star suites with Qatari bodyguards and protected, and uh, they are completely irresponsible. In terms of the obligations that both sides have, who is going to observe that both sides fulfill those obligations? No one, unfortunately. There is no trusted third party on the ground who can separate the forces or peacekeeping troops. Uh, these two sides don't trust each other and they'll be on high alert. The Israelis will be afraid of any snipers or any uh, Hamas fighters or Islamic Jihad fighters who might take pot shots at the Israelis as they're trying to uh, put themselves in more fortified positions during the period of the truce. And certainly the Hamas don't trust the Israelis. It's very easy for one individual with a gun to spark a firefighter between these sides. I think it has been said in the agreement between the sides that if there are provocations, 
that lead to a return of fire when either side feels in danger that it would not be considered a breach of the truce. Of course, a small breach like that could explode into something much bigger. Do you feel confident at this point that the truce will hold for these four days? And what are the chances of it being extended beyond that? And is that, do you think, ultimately in Hamas's hands? I don't want to say I'm confident or not confident. I'm hopeful. And that's as far as I can go in terms of whether or not this will be uh, kept. There is an interest in Israel of getting back all the hostages that it's possible to get back in this deal. Uh, they are willing to expend, extend the truce for additional days. If Hamas is willing to release 10 hostages at least on those additional days. So Hamas could, if it wants to, drag this out significantly longer than the four days that it, it's been according to the agreement. I think Hamas has an interest in relieving itself of the of the children, the women, and the elderly hostages. They do want to keep the soldiers or those they identify as soldiers in order to try and negotiate them for release of Palestinian prisoners in Israel. But I think uh, keeping these uh, children and women and elderly people are, are, is a burden to them. It is also against their religious beliefs. They are supposed to be a religious Islamic movement. It is specifically written in their Holy Quran that you don't attack women and children and elderly people and you don't hold them as hostages. So taking them was even against what they're supposed to believe in. Looking beyond this four-day period, I think there's hope, some hope, that this could lead to perhaps more permanent ceasefire, that it could perhaps lead to some sort of negotiations and perhaps, I think as you have suggested before, some learnings from Northern Ireland. Do you believe that is a likelihood at this point? No, no, I, I don't see any scenario where this war ends with Hamas is still in control of Gaza. There's no scenario where Yahya Sinwar and the leaders of Hamas and Gaza emerge from the tunnels and claim victory. That's that's not in this game. This this is what happened in the history of the clashes between Israel and Hamas over the last 17 years. This is not that case. October 7th changed all that. The atrocities committed by Hamas inside of Israel, it, it made Hamas in the position that Israel is no longer willing to tolerate their existence as a force that controls the territory next to Israel. When I talk about the Belfast moment, as I've referred to it, I'm talking about the post-war scenario where there will be some kind of vacuum of leadership, of control, of governance in Gaza. And that's when I hope that the people of Israel and the people of Palestine stand up and say no more, that we've had enough, we have killed each other enough, we have been killed enough, and we want to move on. And it's important to remember that Israelis and Palestinians will never forget this chapter. This is the biggest trauma to the Israeli people since the Holocaust. And without comparison, it's the biggest trauma to the Palestinian people since their Nakba catastrophe of 1948. No one's going to forget. But the challenge here is for all of us to recognize that between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea, there are 7 million Israeli Jews and 7 million Palestinian Arabs, and the land is claimed by both as their homeland. And we need to be able to stand up and say, I accept that everyone living between the river and the sea has the same right to the same rights. If we will be able to say that after the war, the new generation will stand up. We will get rid of our leaders on both sides, in Israel and Palestine, because they brought us to this point. But we need the young people to stand up with a new idea, a new vision, a new hope, a new reality that they're willing to create. Then we will have had our Belfast moment. And while the peace in Belfast is not a perfect peace, 
people aren't killing each other there anymore, and they're trying to figure out what to do with Northern Ireland in the future. We need to be at least at that point in Israel and Palestine. All right. Uh, Gershom Baskin, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us here on The Tonight Show. I really appreciate your insight. Thank you. Well, I'm joined here in studio by Fianna Fáil Senator Lisa Chambers, Sinn Féin TD Pierce Doherty and Professor John O'Brennan from Maynooth University. You're all very welcome to the programme, uh, Pierce. We have been led to believe all day that the hostages would be released to the first, perhaps 10 or 12 would be released tomorrow. And we just got breaking news before we came on air that that now has been delayed until Friday. We have to be hopeful that that is not a bad sign, but I suppose it goes to the point that Gershon was making this is incredibly precarious at this point. It is, and you know, we're looking on as spectators and we just seen in your footage, your interview with, you know, Tom Hand and, and thinking about Emily and all of the other parents of all the, and loved ones of the, the hostages and to think what they're thinking when they hear this news that what they were expecting is a, a, a number of hostages being released yesterday and now that it's put back and everybody starts to question why that is. So hopefully um, that the, the, the agreement that has been reached uh, and mediated by Qatar is, is, is still in place and that we have no reason to believe that it's not uh, and that all hostages need to be released. You know, this is a, a moment where there is some hope um, where both sides um, have agreed to do the right thing in terms of uh, a temporary ceasefire um, and also the release of hostages. But all hostages should be released and that's without, without uh, conditions. And the temporary pause can't be a temporary, it can't be a four-day. We cannot go back to a situation where Israel is slaughtering thousands of men, women and children uh, without any regard, where hospitals are being bombed, where infrastructure mm. is, where the displacement of millions of people is just not acceptable. And, you know, there is a moment of hope here that uh, this can flourish into something greater. Um, but I think we need uh, the world to speak with one voice. It's, it is happening before our eyes and we need to, to, to make sure that this is now something that is turns into something more permanent. Yeah, and yet, Lisa, we hear from Gershon Bascon, who knows the situation intimately over there, who has <coughs> been across hostage negotiations between mm. Israel and Hamas, has direct contacts with Hamas, and he is saying we are far from the point of a ceasefire here and now. Yeah, I mean, I think it's acknowledged that it's an extremely um, challenging situation and very precarious, as you said. And I think the interview with Gershon was really, um, really interesting to get that insight from somebody that's, that's so experienced. We're all just so incredibly anxious. I can't imagine what it must be to be one of those parents and to wonder how your child is doing. It's been seven weeks. There are children in there with no parents. Who's minding them? What's, how have they been the last few weeks? In what, what condition are they in when we, when we get people back? Even in the last week or so, where we've gotten 51 of our own citizens and their dependents out to the RAF for crossing those that were in Gaza, um, incredibly challenging. And those people are traumatised as well from what they've been through. So, But how is, do we get the, the Belfast moment? What can the international community do, Lisa, at this point, to try and bring Israel and Hamas to the table? I think we're along a long, long way off that point. And I would agree with Gershon's assessment that I don't see uh, peace talks happening uh, between Hamas and Israel anytime soon. Uh, Hamas's stated aim is to wipe Israel off the map. And Israel, have, and as he pointed out, October 7th <coughs> changed things. Israel no longer want to tolerate Hamas. We are so far away from getting the two around the table. Our focus as an international community has to be on maintaining this ceasefire. It is a glimmer of hope 
that we get four days where we can get humanitarian aid into Gaza, get all of the hostages back and hope that day by day we can extend that ceasefire to a, to, to a permanent position. Yeah, and um, just but so it's extremely challenging. So conscious, uh, John, that for so many people in Gaza, this temporary truce has come so late. I saw footage today of mass graves in Khan Yunus, but perhaps some relief given the fact that there is humanitarian aid going to get into Gaza, and that will, for the first time, include a significant amount of fuel. Yeah, I think that's important to remember that the Israelis have cut off Gaza and have denied the Palestinian people water, electricity and all the essentials that people need to live their lives in a normal context, let alone in one where the kind the scale of bombing that's been going on has been so tremendous. So it will help. But I agree with Lisa's assessment. I think the problem is there are no partners for peace. Yeah. And this is where the difference with Northern Ireland in 1998 came in, comes in. And it was interesting that Gershon mentioned it. I think a lot of people in Israel and Palestine would give anything to be where Northern Ireland is now, even allowing for the fragility. But even if you look beyond Hamas on the side of the Palestinian Authority, their leader is 86 years old. He's been completely redundant and ineffective for a very long time. And on the Israeli side, Benjamin Netanyahu's whole career has been built on opposing peace with the Palestinians and using all kinds of strategies to prevent the Oslo process from the 90s morphing into something that could be sustainable. So I can't see that even with this ceasefire, we're going to reach a point where a sustainable peace is possible. And I know you would have real concerns about what is happening on the West Bank and this idea that they are coming under sustained attack too and it could lead to a third intifada there. Yeah, so we're talking about the potential ceasefire. More than 100 Palestinians died today in Gaza. There were attacks by Israeli forces in the occupied territories in the northern part of the West Bank. At least six or seven people died there. But there have also been repeated attacks by these violent colonial settlers in the West Bank on Palestinian people day after day after day. And because there's been so much focus on Gaza, we really haven't been paying attention and to And it radicalizes people. It's a yeah. creeping kind of colonization of territory and of people in the West Bank. It's completely unacceptable. But in addition to that, we've had continual skirmishing on the border between Lebanon and Israel. It's a kind of low intensity conflict. We've also seen today um, uh, 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 tension between Israel and Syria. So the potential is still there for a much bigger regional conflagration to ignite, and we and shouldn't you, forget that. You There's can so see much that because state. of the US naval presence. Yeah. It is, is a warning, it is a signal, we see you and we will come down hard, isn't it? Yeah, that the Americans sent that task force there because they wanted to send a, a warning to Hezbollah in Lebanon and to the Iranians that they should not attack Israel. Now, I think that probably has worked to some degree so far. But in war, you never know what kind of incident is going to trigger other parties getting involved. And we can't be sure that this isn't going to ignite further in the weeks ahead. OK, well, earlier I spoke to Israeli government spokesperson Elon Levi about this temporary truce. And I asked him why now was the right time for such a deal, which had been rejected by Israel five weeks ago. 
So let me correct the record. Hamas has not presented a concrete offer to return our hostages until now. Hamas abducted our hostages and was planning on holding them. And the only thing that has brought that terror group that perpetrated the October 7th massacre to come around to the idea of releasing the hostages is unrelenting Israeli military pressure. We've been squeezing it, capturing its command centers, confiscating its weapons, putting intense military pressure, and we've had it begging for a breather. And that's why Hamas has agreed that in exchange for releasing 50 hostages, we're starting with the women and children, and we hope to get everyone else out. We're going to agree to a four-day pause, and then Hamas can decide. If it wants another day's pause, it can release 10 additional hostages, and so on and so on. Well, what's being reported that actually it was Israel who came to the table here after intense pressure was put on the Israeli government by your ally, the Americans. No, that is not a correct assessment. Israel started, when we entered this war that Hamas declared on us with the October 7th massacre, we had two main goals. The first was to totally destroy Hamas's terrorist and governing capabilities in the Gaza Strip so it can never again hurt our people like it was promising to do. And the second, to bring back our hostages. You know, Israeli society has been sick with worry, really sick with worry for the last 50 days. There are over 30 children there. There's a 10-month-old baby a three-year-old orphan. Everyone in Ireland will know the story of little Emily Hand as well, whose father thought uh, had been killed uh, for a month. Now, Hamas was not willing to release those hostages. They've come around after serious military pressure. And after we get the first batch out, we plan to continue piling on that pressure because that's the only thing Hamas will respond to. Is it not an acknowledgement that that intense pressure that you talk about, that unrelenting bombardment of Gaza and the catastrophic death toll that we have seen wasn't actually doing anything to secure your stated objective, which was to get the return of the Israeli hostages. No, on the contrary, we're seeing now Israel's strategy being vindicated. Look, Hamas hasn't suddenly developed a conscience. Hamas hasn't suddenly realized that it is evil to hold a two-year-old girl hostage. Hamas is responding to pressure. Hamas launched this war. Hamas now wants a little breather in this war, and that's why it's willing to release those hostages. It hasn't suddenly had a change of heart and become nice humanitarians. It's responding to unrelenting military pressure. And after we get the first batch of hostages out, we will continue to put all of that pressure on until we get everyone home, all 240 of them. We will leave no one left behind. In terms of that response that you talk about, that you are, could I suggest, proud of, would you accept the accusation by the Irish government that that seems to have been really driven by revenge? Hamas launched a horrific massacre on October 7th. And Israel has responded by killing over 13,000 innocent people. No, first of all, you are quoting numbers that are being presented by the terror organization that on October 7th burned, beheaded, abducted babies and then lied about it to the world. So Hamas is the opposite of a credible source. We know that we've killed thousands of terrorists. That has been the objective of this war. And thousands of innocent people. Do you accept that too, Elon? Look, civilian deaths are a tragic and horrific consequence of every war. And they're a tragic and horrific consequence of this war that Hamas started, that we didn't start, we didn't want, we didn't even expect, but Hamas declared that war on us 
with the worst massacre of Jews since the Holocaust on okay. October 7th. Let's talk no, but about this. I want, I want to return to your question. Elon, because I think it's I really important, and I'm just very conscious of time here. Sorry to cut across you. In terms of the current deal, you say it is your objective now to keep going until all of the Israeli hostages are returned, and you are hopeful that Hamas will continue to release those hostages and that the ceasefire can continue. Then what? I want to just return to the previous question because you launched an allegation there that we are acting out of revenge, and I think that is an outrageous accusation. Hamas retreated into the Gaza Strip, having murdered 1,200 people and abducted 240 people, and it said immediately that it wanted to do it again. Hamas said proudly and openly it plans to do as many October 7th as it takes to murder every man, woman, child in the country. So our operation isn't driven by revenge. It's driven by the strategic necessity of making sure that the terror organization that perpetrated that inhumane, atrocious massacre on October 7th, and is proud of it and says it wants to do it again, can never hurt our people again. Okay, can so we please go back to What is going to, to happen the... after this pause? Yes. If you're asking what is going to happen after this pause, we will continue with our campaign to totally destroy Hamas. Because if we do not do that, if this war, this horrible war, does not end with the end of Hamas, we will leave Hamas free to reoffend. We will leave it emboldened. And we're guaranteeing that the fighting will pick up again when Hamas decides at any time of its choosing to invade Israel again and burn whole families, behead right. people, torture people, commit those brutal acts of rape okay. that we saw on October 7th. And we can never allow that to happen again. That is Elon. what we are trying. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Trying to prevent. Levi, uh, thank you for taking the time to speak to us here this evening. Thank you very much. I mean, John, you hear Elon there uh, saying that Hamas hasn't suddenly developed a conscience and I don't think Israel has suddenly developed a conscience either because you can see the struggles that Netanyahu had getting his so-called war cabinet to even agree to this ceasefire. I mean, you have the national security minister calling it immoral. So this, the pressure that he is under. Yeah. Well, first we should acknowledge just how the 7th of October changed the psychology of Israelis. Yeah. Netanyahu always presented himself as Mr. Security, the guy who was going to construct Fortress Israel. You know, that billion dollar fence around Gaza. So he was quite content. 
to keep the people of Gaza behind that fence. And the promise for Israelis is that they would be guaranteed their security. All of that collapsed on the 7th of October. And I think there's been tremendous infighting in the Israeli government about how to proceed. Because if you listen to Mr. Levi, there's no strategy beyond eliminating Hamas. That just takes them back to where they were in 2005, where they're occupying Gaza. And they will be faced with a population, Kira, that absolutely hates them after everything that has happened. All right, look, we're going to have to leave that conversation uh, there for now. My thanks to John, Lisa and Pierce are going to be staying on with me. Next, we're going to debate why it will cost workers and employers more to keep the retirement age at 66. We debate. You're very welcome back. Well, the government has announced plans to gradually hike PRSI contributions to boost the state's pension pot. Senator Lisa Chambers and Sinn Féin TD Pierce Doherty are still with me here in studio. And I'm also joined by Fergal O'Brien from business group IBEC and by Louise Byrne, who is political correspondent with the Irish Daily Mirror. You're both very welcome to the programme. I'm going to start with you, Louise, because the good news is that the majority of us are living longer. The bad news is... How are we going to pay for that? And the issue of pensions, when are we going to get them and who's going to pay for them is an absolute hot political potato. Yeah, and has been for a very long time. And if you remember back to the formation of government talks back in kind of May, June 2020, the pension age was really the issue that was the sticking issue for many of the parties. So what was agreed at the election was that when Fine Gael, Fianna Fáil and the Greens went into government together, that they would commission a report and that report came back last year. Now what that report recommended was putting up the pension age. The government then later decided that it wouldn't do that. They would keep the pension age at 66 but they said we can't keep going the way that we're going because if we do keep paying the pension the way we're paying it but then by 2040 all of our social welfare will be going on the pension and we won't have any money for anything else. The social insurance fund would be absolutely wiped out by the pensions is what it said. Exactly. And it, it projected a pretty serious shortfall didn't it? By 2030 which is not that far away. Yeah it did. So it said the short the annual shortfall by 2030 would be 2.36 billion euro. By 2040, it would be 8.56 billion. By 2050, 13.35 and so on and so forth. It increase obviously every year because the population is ageing. So the plan by the government is? So the plan by the government is to keep the pension age at 66 and kind of allow people this more flexible retirement age that you kind of retire anywhere between 66 and then whenever you want. But Heather Humphreys, when she announced this plan, it was last September, 12 months, she said that if we're to keep the pension age at 66, then we're going to have to do small incremental changes to PRSI. Now, we've known for quite a while and this pension roadmap, this PRSI roadmap has been kind of long awaited and in some ways sort of delayed. We were expecting it much sooner, but it was approved by Cabinet yesterday and they decided that in 2024, the pension the PRSI rather, will go up by 0.1%. The government are actually really keen to stress that that is not going to be an awful lot for people. It's under 50 euro a year and the kind of the argument is that because of the tax indexation, because of changes to tax credits, changes to tax bans, that it's all kind of negated and people won't really feel it. But I think where the big concern is that is for businesses, not only have you got the employer PRSI going up, you have sick leave, you have all these other kind of things that but are coming in. But it's not just next year, this is five years and there's going to be exactly. an incremental increase for those five years. Yeah, exactly. So I think maybe that's what took people by surprise because we knew it was going up next year, but we didn't necessarily realise that it was going to go up every year for five years. So 0.1% again next year and in 
after that 0.15% for two years and then after that in 2028 0.2%. Okay so Pierce Doherty, Sinn Féin has been saying for some time that that social insurance fund is short and that we need to put more money into it. Hmm. This is a proposal now that employers, employees and the self-employed pay a little bit more, small incremental Hmm. amounts over the next five years and you say no this really needs to be put on employers. I think the government are getting this wrong on a number of ways. Uh, First of all, the way that whose shoulders this fall on and when, I think they've got that wrong. I think, um, as Louise talked about there in terms of the last election, we put the issue of the right to retire at the age of 65 on the political agenda because at that stage, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael had legislated Mm -hmm. to put the age up to 68 over time. Okay, but but let's just focus tonight on funding it. But this is the part of the plan. The problem is 65 or 66. 65 is really important. Because the people that were out working today in the construction or the hairdressers or people working on the factory floor deserve the right to choose okay, to retire so at the age of 65. Let's just focus on and the that's issue where the government's got it wrong. going to fund it and it, how it's going to be funded. And, and the second part of it is in relation to how they plan to fund it. I had the NTMA before the committee today and, you know, the issue of pension and paying for pensions isn't something new. We had a National Pension Reserve Fund decades ago. That fund should have been about €100 billion Euro now. It we're supposed to be drawn down from that fund in 2025, but Fianna Fáil handed it over to the banks when they bust the economy, just to make that point. So where should it lay now? It should, in my view, uh, lay on the shoulders in the first instance in relation to employers who are able to carry that burden. There's a lot of burdens on employers at the minute because of minimum wage increases that are happening next year, and they'll continue for the next but number you want- of years. More burden on them. No, in, in terms of so, for example, the increase that we've argued for as a first step should be on employers on the portion of pay above €100,000. Why do we choose that? Because we believe that people who are uh, paying their workers over €100,000, then they are more likely to have the capacity to absorb a PRSI, an employer's PRSI increase than the local shop who's trying to support 50 jobs in the area but has to deal with the fact that the minimum wage has okay. gone up, auto enrolment's gone up and the sick leave entitlement is, is all coming okay, on top Okay, and you want to put it up, you're saying, to 13.05% but I think at around the election time, you said 15.75%. Yeah, uh, That's uh, where you wanted to go for employers. Uh, exactly. For employers in terms of that portion of income above 100,000, uh, 100, you wouldn't do that overnight. So for the first step would be to increase it by 13, uh, up to 13%. And remember, employers' PRSI, if we look at PRSI, employers' PRSI is half what it is the average in Europe. So what Sinn Féin are proposing isn't even coming close to bringing it to European uh, norms in relation okay, to Okay, so the year. point being made here is that employers who are paying salaries of over 100,000, first of all, can afford it. Kira, I think the, the challenge we have is that in, the bill for everything has been put on employers at the moment, right? Pierce mentioned we have auto-enrolment coming. We've had a 15% when you include the tax implications of the increase in the statutory minimum wage. We've additional leave days. When you add all of this up, we're probably looking for some businesses. We're looking at labour costs going up by a third. In IBEC, we're talking to members right across the country at the moment, and they're budgeting for next year, and they're wondering how they're going to continue to deliver a margin. But to the point, I suppose, that Pierce said, if companies are paying these salaries over 100,000, as opposed to somebody struggling with a corner shop, they have the capacity to pay. I don't, I don't think the sums will add up, right? Mm-hmm. What we see today, right, we're seeing, seeing a, two, two things happening today, right? So government is saying that we're going to give people better unemployment benefits, right, in, in terms of short-term uh, unemployment. That to us makes perfect sense. And it's really interesting, actually, when you look at the contrast with what's happening across the water, the very significant cut in social insurance. 
but that's going to mean the long run is actually a cut in benefits. That's the reality. And none of us actually want to see that kind of state. We want to see a state that where we're supporting workers and where we're going to have good benefits. So two elements to take care of. We're going to see that um, earnings-related social welfare, which we think is a good thing. The other element is because we haven't grasped the nettle on the pensions reform, which, as Louise said, the Pensions Commission agreed on last year and almost unanimous agreement for what needed to be done, we haven't grasped that nettle. And now it's the employers predominantly that have been asked to pay that and are being asked to pay all of these other bills as well. And okay. this is adding up to a real blow to competitiveness and it's going to have consequences. Okay, so Lisa, it's the aggregate here. It's not just this single issue. The government wants to give out the goodies to employees, but it's the employer who's once again been asked to foot the bill. So, look, there's two big issues that the government had to grapple with and try and address. One was the keeping the pension age at 66, which we're doing, but acknowledging that people are now getting a pension for probably 20 plus years. We're living that much longer. It's going to cost a lot of money. And remember, that's on the shoulders of workers, people working every day. They have to pay for those pensions. So we have to make provision for that. So in order to pay for those pensions for that length of time, we had to raise extra finances. That's the job of the responsibility of being in government and running the Department of Finance. Um, so the, pay, or the, the increment being introduced as of October next year is 0.1%. It'll be 0.1% the next year, then 0.15, 0.15 and 0.1%. What Sinn Féin is saying you should actually be putting more on employers, and I, and given come, the fact that in comparison to many other European come, countries, they pay significantly yeah, and less. I, and I'll come to that. So that'll work out at about 90 cents a week is what we're, we're looking to introduce next year. So in return for that, we're keeping the pension age at 66 and we're also dealing with another issue where you could be earning a certain income and you base your lifestyle on that income in terms of your mortgage and your bills and you lose your job. And the current social welfare payment often doesn't meet the outgoings. So what you now get as well with that is an extra pay-related social benefit payment of over, a, for, over 400 euros. But that okay, be, but the point but we made be, here is that that's great, that'll be great if you have a job, but actually more people are going to lose well, their jobs because of this measure. I wouldn't agree with that. I think that this has been spread across employers and employees on an incremental basis with very small increases. But it's acknowledging we have two big challenges. How do we deal with keeping the pension age as low as it is with an, with an increasing life, life expectancy? We have to pay for that. And how do we manage to give an increased social welfare payment to those that lose their jobs so they can actually get through that period? Okay, let's and, and can I just make one final point here? Sinn Féin and, and Pierce had enough pops there at the government in terms of his speech, they're, they're, they're just gone. But it took you quite a while to get out of Sinn Féin, how they plan to pay for it. It's very easy to say when you're in opposition, oh, we'll tax those on really high incomes and we'll load it all on employers. That's not realistic. The sums don't add up. What we're proposing okay. is incremental, it's fair, and we're being very upfront as to why we're doing it uh, and what needs for, to be paid for. Things have to get paid for. Okay, please. but no, no, just to that these, point. Costs, these costs are really significant. So look, I know the 0.1%, it looks kind of harmless, right? When this is implemented, it's going to be 1 billion euros a year on the national payable. That's what businesses are going to pay for this. And, you know, in many ways, business will step up to the plate here in terms of funding our social insurance fund and funding the social welfare system. We need to see the other reforms happening. The crucial point here is we're doing way too much too quickly and the full bill, almost the entirety of the bill, is going to employers okay. that are really, really going to struggle with this cost when you put it together in the aggregate. And I because that, that 0.1% is a billion once implemented. We're seeing the same in terms of the 15% increase in the minimum wage. That's going to be a billion. Yeah, but the, the pension issue, sorry, pensions. is, is so an absolute These are big numbers. These are big pop. numbers. So we shouldn't trivialise trivialize the cost okay. because I, I know there's businesses that are going to struggle to pay their bills next year because of all these all right. costs. I just want to get back into fair. Point. Sorry, Pierce, yeah. there's a very important point here being made, which is that your figures don't add up. And you said today that 
what would be generated by this increase to 13.05% for employers would be 169 million. That's the, the projected. First, in the first year. In the okay. first year. And the projected shortfall by 2030 is 2.26 billion. Yeah. Where's the other 2 billion coming from? Well, f- first of all, the, the, the figure in terms of increase in employers' PSI in the portion above 100,000 euro mm. brings in over 600 million euro. The Commission on Taxation also asked us... Between now and 2030? Actually, between now and the next five years. Between now and the next five years. The Commission on Taxation also asked us to look at the issue of share-based remuneration. So this is pay that is people are getting. It's not in hard cash. They get it in shares. It is exempt from PRSI. And there's about 275 275 million. million How much of that could you get back? Well, I think it's it's something that we need to look at because it may be a case that you don't just apply, apply you, you get rid of it altogether. There is supports there that for in SMEs and what the Commission asked in relation to caps. What we're saying here, Kira, is very clear. Okay. What we're saying is this here, that this is about who you ask at the start. Yeah, but I'm just asking you, there's burden. still a very significant shortfall. You're saying these are the first steps. They are the first steps. What because are the next what we, steps? Well, the next steps then is you're looking at employers who have um, who have employees that are earning less than €100,000. They're the next steps. It's about how you carry this burden. Okay, now, Lisa, Lisa, no, no, let me just make this point, because well, Lisa points. talks about fairness. Yeah. See, I think it is completely unfair, and I think the public are with us on this here. It is completely unfair to ask people to uh, to to continue to work after the age of sixty-five. People have the right to retire the, the, at the age of sixty-five. And the difference, the difference, and you're setting at sixty-six. Yeah. Sinn Féin are committed. If we get into government, we will okay, allow people the right the to retire issue, at the Pierce, age of sixty-five. Because if it's sixty-five, and, there's going to be an even bigger and shortfall. The, and the How co- are you making and the it up? And the cost of that there is hundred and thirty million euro. Okay. And Kira, we are the only party, the only party year after year okay. for the last decade who have shown that we need to increase right, the PRSI one, one, over the last number of years. Louise, the ran away with it, the Gale ran away with it. My understanding of it is if you left the pension age, if you brought it down to 65, it would actually cost €355 million Euro a year. No, it's not. That's not the case because it is a pension transition. It is what was there in, tw- in 24, uh, 2014, which it is it's the right to retire. The okay, difference. Very last line to Lisa here, sorry. Just very conscious what you're presenting, here. Pierce, is not clear and it has taken a lot to extract from you how you intend to pay for this. It sounds lovely. 65 would be fantastic. How do you pay for it? You can't even articulate how you'll pay for 60 to retire okay, at 66. Has what been, at least been proposed clear... today, does it make up the shortfall in the pension fund, What's been proposed Lisa? today will deal with the pension issue, but also... For how long? Will also... For how long, Lisa? Well, long for till, till what, 2040? Because it doesn't. Well, sorry, there's, there's increases proposed now to 2028 here. Yeah. And at least the government are putting forward a very clear... But it doesn't deal with the shortfall it. either. And it, it doesn't, doesn't deal, it doesn't and deal with the shortfall. It's like, also dealing with the relationship. The difference between me well. and you is that there are businesses here that are struggling at the minute, which I don't believe that at this point in time they should be carrying additional burden. But Let's the, focus sorry, on those that can carry it. And the second thing is, I believe that somebody... You can't answer how you pay for I've made it very clear. We've argued this every time. And it's very simple. And it's very simple. You, Fianna like, do not want the bricky who is out building our houses today to be able right. to retire at the age of 65. But, it is true. It is we, true. We would be honest you're denying them the right to, you're denying them the right to retire at the age of 65. That's not true. And you're being sensational. Or are you, are you going to give right. them the, the right to retire at the age of 65? Sorry, the pension age in this country is 66. And it should be 65. And we will make sure if we get in government that it will be 65. That debate which clearly has a lot <laughs> more energy in it. Pension fund if it wasn't for Fianna Fáil, you well, have to leave that debate there for now. My thanks to Pierce, to Fergal and to Louise. Next, we were going to talk about high drama, but I think we've just halved it. <laughs> we're going to be looking at the world of artificial intelligence. Do come back.
You're very welcome back. Well, just days after being ousted from the company that created ChatGPT, Sam Altman is returning as CEO of OpenAI. It caps a tumultuous weekend, which saw him sacked, agreed to head a new research team at Microsoft, and then hundreds of his employees threatening to follow him there. Well, for more on this quite fascinating story, I'm joined by Irish independent tech editor, Adrian Weckler. Adrian, you're very welcome to the programme. So, Open AI, we know who they are. Mm. Who is Sam Altman in all of this? Sam Altman, depending on who you talk to, is the most hyped, most important figure in Silicon Valley at the moment. So he's the CEO of OpenAI, which is the predominant artificial intelligence company. That's the company that brings us ChatGPT, for example. He was also the former president of Y Combinator, which was the biggest startup accelerator, brought us the Collison brothers of, uh, of Stripe, for example. So he is regarded as something of a messiah figure, very energetic, very visible, has been touring the world talking about artificial intelligence, both the benefits and the dangers and the downfalls. So when he was ousted by the board at OpenAI, nobody saw it coming. Everybody was blindsided. It created a major soap opera, which uh, we're sti- we're not quite out of yet. And just to be clear, you said to me just before we, before we came on air, this guy is to artificial intelligence what Steve Jobs was to communication 30 years ago. That's to his fans, he is definitely. So that is the reason why when he was fired by the board, over 700 of the 770 staff at OpenAI said they would resign and join uh, Microsoft instead, which is the major investor in OpenAI, if they did not reinstate Sam Altman and get rid of the board. And that's exactly what they did. Okay, so this decision by the board that came out of nowhere, backfired spectacularly, is going to raise questions why? Why did they want rid of him in the first place? That is still literally the $10 billion question because the board members who were behind the coup, if you want to put it that way, haven't yet been clear about why. What it, Joining the dots, what appears to have happened is a major disagreement between some of the board and Sam Altman as to what OpenAI is and what it should be. Should it be a non-profit organization, which is how it was set up, a research organization to go at the pace that a normal research organization does, or should it go more in the direction of a for-profit organization? Should it commercialize ChatGPT more? It has big investors. It's estimated to be valued at $90 billion. The, The investors and Sam Altman and many others wanted to go down a commercial route. Some on the board don't want that to happen. And that was really where they butted heads. Okay, so this is really about the ideology behind AI. And it's about money. And about money. And he was going to go to Microsoft, mm-hmm. and Microsoft has invested $10 billion in OpenAI. Did they want him to leave? No, they did not want him to leave. Uh, they wanted OpenAI to stay on a commercial trajectory with Sam Altman at the, at the helm. So, yes, they would have taken Sam Altman uh, and all of those OpenAI employees, but that would have given them a massive headache because now they would have to go in front of Congress, the European Union and other places in London and say why they were the ones who were overseeing the dangers of artificial intelligence. Right now, they can say that they merely have an investment in open AI and it's at we arm's length. We have no length. responsibility no here. No responsibility. It's, it's them you should be talking to. We're just the investor. Yes, we'll get all of the benefit from it because we're the major investor and we provide all the, the compute. So it was going to be a disaster for Microsoft. Their share price dropped uh, by several percent, about $100 billion. Now everything's rosy in the garden again. Okay, we talked about the the drama 
behind the scenes. And what was so interesting to see sort of play out was the fact that this board, who seemed to support him for so long, suddenly changed their mind. There seemed to have been lobbying going on by perhaps one individual on the board to get them to agree to oust him. But then some of those members of the board changed their mind again and came out and publicly said, we've made a mistake. They did. And it was one board member in particular, a guy called Ilya Sutskever, who uh, changed his mind and publicly apologised for what he had done in joining the board members in firing Sam Altman. He changed his mind and he and several others and the investors and all of the staff persuaded the the uh, Helen Toner and the other board members who got uh, Altman sacked that they shouldn't have done it. Why does he have such backing within ChatGPT, within uh, OpenAI? Two reasons. First of all, because of this messiah uh, aura that he has. And the other reason is because under his plans and under the plan to value OpenAI at $86 billion, all of the staff are now headed for a major payday because they're going to get yeah, shares that, <laughs> that divest. For 770 staff? Yep. We're talking kerching here. We're you're talking ta- payday. You're talking a lot of money um, uh, that they will get in employee benefits. So, um, you know, they'll talk about the mission. They'll talk about the work they're doing. They'll talk about the project. There's also the money. The dollar. Um, yeah, and, and money talks in this situation. Okay, so what does it mean then for the future of AI? It means that f- as best we know, um, open AI and artificial intelligence that it has been developing and Anthropic and uh, other institutions is going to continue at relatively breakneck pace. Now, Sam Altman, while he's been touring the world talking about the dangers of AI and warning us to regulate it properly, has also been the singular figure who is pushing artificial intelligence. The reason that kids are, are asking ChatGPT to do their, uh, their essays at home is largely because of Sam Altman. So he has this dual uh, role at the moment, and there's no sign of artificial intelligence slowing up in terms of its development as long as Sam Altman is at the helm. But, but in future going forward, do you think um, AI is something we're all going to be paying for? No, I don't. I think that almost everything we use in five to 10 years will have some part of AI in it and will be built in, baked into our products and they'll be probably mostly free. But we will pay for the really advanced cases that we use. You don't think this is the end of the saga, do you? No, I think there's an investigation which is going to happen into exactly why Sam Altman was fired. And in that investigation, it's possible that some new information and facts will come out and I think that even if that doesn't impact his, his role or his job, I think the saga and the, the reporting on it and the mystique and the soap opera will probably continue. To him, do you it think? could be. Well, I, 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 don't, I don't know, okay. but, but this, this, can, this story will run and run. Okay, very interesting as always. Adrian Weckler, thank you for coming in to us. Well, that is it from us here on The Tonight Show, from all of the team here. Good night to you all and do. Take care. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.